head at the passage, you know that at first glance and maybe second and third glance, it looks to be a highly skippable portion of Scripture. It's interesting. I looked at how other pastors handled this portion. A lot of them stop at about chapter 12 and pick up about chapter 22 and just entirely skip this middle section. Um, it is seven chapters of real estate boundaries. Um, it, it yields a map that looks kind of like this. It has uh, the boundaries for each of the 12 tribes in the promised land. And it reads like this. This is just a sample from chapter 15. The allotment for the tribe of the people of Judah, according to their clans, reached southward to the boundary of Edom, to the wilderness of Zin at the farthest south. And their south boundary ran from the end of the Salt Sea, from the bay that faces southward. It goes out southward of the ascent of Akrabim, passes along to Zin, and moves up south of Kadesh Barnea, along by Hezron up to Adar, turns about to Karka, passes along to Asman, goes out by the brook of Egypt, and comes to its end at the sea. This shall be your south boundary. And the east boundary is the Salt Sea to the mouth of the Jordan, and the boundary on the north side runs from the bay of the sea at the mouth of the Jordan. Okay, and doesn't that just bless you to, to read those words from God? So what, what do you do with this? Seven chapters of real estate descriptions. Um, when Paul was writing about the scriptures, he had the Old Testament primarily in mind, I'm sure, when he wrote, all scriptures read by, by, up by God and profitable for, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So he says, all scriptures profitable. Uh, is there like an exception clause for the real estate section of the book of Joshua? Um, how do seven chapters of Old Testament real estate bequeathment profit us? And so before we can answer that question, there's another question that I think it's helpful to think about, and that's, how did it profit them? The people to whom this was originally addressed, the people of Israel, having fled slavery from Egypt and just entered into this land that's being described in, in this section of the book of Joshua. How did it profit them? And you have to think of it and realize this was their inheritance, right? It, in some ways... It's like we're listening in on the reading of a will. And what they are getting is a plot of land. Um, you know, uh, more than 25 years ago now, Steph and I uh, bought the house that we've lived in ever since. And uh, so this kind of language 25 years ago is really meaningful to us. Being all of Lot 22 of Sherwood Forest, Phase 2, as shown on Platt Recorded in Platt Record File 3, Slide 161C, Franklin County Registry. Yes! Okay? That was meaningful to us because that was the land we were buying. You know, and it described, we got a map that went with it. Looks like this. And if you look really close, way down here, there's a little skinny piece somewhere down in here that says 125. Yes! That's ours, right? That's where we live. We call that place home. Means nothing to you. Means everything to us, right? And when we were buying, this was all, all very excited about it. So imagine that you're inheriting some land. Um, man, wouldn't you want to pay close attention uh, 
to where that land was and who was next to you and was there a creek that ran through it and all the little details. Um, But now imagine that not only are you inheriting a tract of land, but that your, uh, your family has been landless slaves for 400 years and now you're inheriting some land. And add on to that, for the last 40 years, which is for all of your life, you've been uh, landless, wandering, homeless nomads in the desert. And, and that's, that's where we find the people today. They're experiencing that. You know, back in 1863, President Lincoln ordered 20,000 acres of land confiscated in South Carolina, sold to freed slaves. Um, can you imagine what that was like for them, for those slaves, to get a plot of land that they owned that was their own? Um, so when, when this real estate manifesto would have been read to the people of Israel, it was a joyful, wonderful piece of news for them. It was the long-awaited fulfillment of God's promise to them as a people. One writer described it as promise geography because that's really what it is. It's, it's, uh, it's the heart of the book of Joshua. This section is why the book of Joshua exists. Okay? Um, and it reinforces the truth that God can be trusted to keep his promises even if his sense of timing is really radically different than ours. Um, Peter uses that kind of language when he looks forward to another fulfillment of God's, one of God's promises. He says, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand, a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So uh, if Frederick Douglass said that the wheels of justice turn slowly, well then the wheels of God's justice sometimes turn very, very slowly. And God's people were learning, as, as we must learn, that even though the fulfillment of God's promises takes a long time, his faithfulness is revealed more slowly than we would like. We are right to wait and hope in God even over a very, very long time. And this waiting on God is not something that we're good at as a people. We're not, as a culture, we're not good at waiting for anything. We, a uh, recent survey found that um, we'll give somebody a, talking in a movie theater 26 seconds before we shush them. Um, If someone's talking too loud on a cell phone, we give them 45 seconds before we ask them to keep it down. And um, we will grant 13 seconds before we honk at a car in front of us that stopped at a green light. And that last one is way too generous. No one gives you 13 seconds if you're distracted and the light turns green, right? If you get three seconds, you know, there's probably a saint behind you if they give you three seconds. See, but, but don't miss, as you, as you think about this, from these seven really highly skippable real estate chapters, we get a strong encouragement, even an admonition, that we are right to wait and hope in God, even if that's over a very, very long time. 
in Joshua 21, we'll see in the next week or so, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. They all came to pass. And so I know some of you feel like God has not been faithful to you. That he's not, he's not done what he promised to do. And, and that's, that's what you're tempted to, to think. God has not been faithful. Um, but our story today adds one little word to that. God has not been faithful yet. We have not seen his faithful demonst- faithfulness demonstrated yet. And we are right to continue to wait and trust and hope that God will bring good to us. We are right to hope that. So, step into our passage in chapter 13, and it records the allotment of the land to the tribes of Israel, right? Verse 1, Joshua was old, advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, you are old and advanced in years, and there remains very much land to possess. So if you drop down a few verses to verse 6, God says, I myself will drive the people out from before the people of Israel. Only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance, as I have commanded you. Now, therefore, divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and half the tribe of Manasseh. So we are reminded about, just in that little bit, we're reminded of something else that's true about God that underlies this whole section, right? He is Lord of the land. It belongs to him. Professor David Howard says a major emphasis in this section is that God was the great land owner and land giver. Just as in chapters 1 to 12, he's presented as the one who guided and fought for Israel, giving its enemies into its hands. So now he appears as the one who gave Israel the land. The detailed boundary descriptions, lists of cities, serve to emphasize the fact that God had been in control of this land all along and he had the authority to parcel it out as he saw fit. So over and over again, the scriptures teach us this truth. God owns it all. He is Lord of all the earth. Deuteronomy says it this way. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens and the earth with all that is in it. And the Psalms echo it. Famously, they say, for the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. And so the Israelites were right, even after all this time had passed, to wait and trust and hope in God and teach their children And teach their grandchildren and teach their great-grandchildren to wait and trust and hope in God. But this was not an easy lesson. It's not an easy lesson for us. It wasn't an easy lesson for them. And so um, you find that even though the land was right there underfoot, literally, um, they struggled to trust and obey God in taking possession of it. There are two little kind of untrusting vignettes that are recorded at the back of chapter 17 and the front of chapter 18. If you'll look there with me, the first involves the tribe of Joseph. So chapter 17, verse 14, the people of Joseph spoke to Joshua saying, 
Why have you given me but one lot and one portion as inheritance, although I am a numerous people, since all along the Lord has blessed me? So we have from the tribe of Joseph, they register a complaint with Joshua. The land allotted to them was too small. Okay. Um, bottom line, they aren't content with what they'd been given. They want more. Now, isn't it scary how fast they went from having no land to having too little land. I mean, just like that. They had nothing. And then what they had, they were complaining about. Um, and I, does that sound familiar to you? Um, you ever heard that kind of discontent before? I, it reminds me of me, Right? <laughs> It reminds me of me. There's a writer, his name is Joe Quinton, and he writes for the New York Times. And he describes our culture's inability to accept and be thankful for the ordinary. Right? He says, um, every experience must be a watershed. Every meal, extraordinary. Every friendship, amazing. Every concert, superb. Every sunset, meta-celestial. Nothing can ever again be exactly what it was meant, in, what it was in the first place. Ordinary. And uh, Christian author Michael Horton adds to that. He says, Today we feel the pressure to have our weddings look like the cover of a bridal magazine or a movie set. Our marriages have to be made in heaven, even though we're very much on earth. Our presentations at work have to dazzle. Our kids have to make the dean's list and get into the best graduate schools. Nothing short of brilliant and groundbreaking will satisfy if you want a good job. When we do stop and smell the roses, it has to be an unforgettable package at an amazing resort. It's not enough to enjoy recreation at the public park, but extreme sports are what really interest us. We, we are not thankful for the ordinary. We, we are a discontented culture. And uh, there was another survey that came out recently. They surveyed people to find out, and they did this in all 50 states, that the, which states people would most like to not live in. So, and they, what they found out is one out of every three people in America don't want to live in the state they're in. One out of three of us would rather live somewhere else. So, um, the states who were, who were, where people were least content with their state were um, Illinois and Connecticut. Half of the people in those states wish they lived in another state. Um, the most content were Montana, Hawaii, and Maine. But even in those states, one out of four people still wish they lived somewhere else. They don't want to live in those states. I, I can't imagine that anyone would use the word content to describe us, right? Nor would you describe the tribe of Joseph that way. But this, is jo this is Joshua's response to them. They say, we don't, we don't have enough. And Joshua says, if you're a numerous people, go up by yourselves to the forest and clear ground for yourselves in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephaim. And since the hill country of Ephraim is too, too narrow for you, so Joshua offers them more land, the forest lands. And this is how they reply. The people of Joseph said, the hill country is not enough for us. Yet all the Canaanites who dwell in the plain have chariots of iron, both those in Bethshean and its villages and those in the valley of Jezreel. So he offers them more land, and they complain back with a double complaint. It's still not enough, okay? Even though you granted us more land, it's still not enough, and there's Canaanites 
around there, and they have chariots. So at this point, it's starting to get a little embarrassing, right? They've gone from having no land to getting a gift of land and then getting more land, and they're still discontent. They've gone from watching God do battle after battle for them. And in chapter 11, if you remember, specifically they overcame chariots, the Canaanites' chariots. Um, and now they're still afraid of the Canaanites. Um, Professor Hubbard says, To challenge land assignments made by the lot is, in effect, to challenge the wisdom and goodness of God himself, a mistake their ancestors made in the wilderness. And I realized then that you and me, we're kin to these Israelites, okay? They're like us, and we are like them. I'm greatly blessed by God, but I complain to God about what I don't have. I'm invited to trust God, and I whine that there's some kind of risk that might be involved. And so thereby I challenge the wisdom and goodness of God himself. But Joshua, ever the great leader, doesn't take him to task for this. He encourages them to trust God. Um, he says in verse 17, Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, you are a numerous people, have great power. You shall not have one allotment only, but the hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it and possess it to its farthest borders. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron and though they are strong. This is a, this is a great pep talk. But it's rooted in the promises of God and the faithfulness of God. For instance, back in chapter 7 of the book of Deuteronomy, when they're getting ready to enter the promised land, um, Moses says, if you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. The great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand, the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So will the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. You skip down a little bit. He says, you shall not be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. The Lord your God will clear away these nations before you little by little. And, and it's as though God knew they were going to be worried about the chariots. Because in Deuteronomy, still before they entered the land, he tells them, when you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. You know, this is based on the promise of God and the faithfulness of God. One writer says that these Josephites apparently have a short memory and feeble faith. They've forgotten the decisive victory that Yahweh won against the Canaanites and their chariots in chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 6, we just saw this. The Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them to you slain. To Israel you shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. And then in verse 9, Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. And the tribe of Joseph here is discontent and distrustful of the goodness of God so they won't obey him. Um, Chapter 18, the next few verses right after this, contains another kind of low light in this section. 
um, where the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh, set up the tent of meeting there, and the land lay subdued before them. And there remained among the people of Israel seven tribes whose inheritance had not yet been apportioned. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, How long will you put off going in to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? So it sounds like they're not taking possession of the land that God gave to them. They're not, they're not taking hold of their inheritance. After all of these promises, after all of the waiting for this, after all of the battles that had been fought and all the miracles they'd seen, now they're kind of dawdling. They're slow to obey God. And this is a recurring theme throughout this section. There's defect in their obedience. Sometimes it's delayed obedience. Sometimes it's partial obedience. But you see it over and over. Chapter 13. The people of Israel did not drive out the Geshurites or the Machathites, but Geshur and Machath dwell in the midst of Israel to this day. Chapter 15. The Jebusites, the, inheritance, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah could not drive out, so the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. Chapter 16. However, they did not drive out the Canaanites who live in Gezer, so the Canaanites have lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day, but have been made to do forced labor. Chapter 17. The people of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities, but the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. Now when the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not utterly drive them out. So for any number of reasons, you see it over and over again, the Israelites did not fully obey God. They did not drive the Canaanites out of the land. And instead, it looks like they kept them around for cheap labor. Um, they didn't trust God. So you, you know how I know when my kids trust me? Uh, they, they follow my advice. I know they trust me. Okay? If, I, if I give them advice and they follow it, then I know that, that they trust me. So imagine a scenario where I buy one of my kids a $900 car. Okay. Of course, this is hypothetical. What kind of dad would buy his kid a $900 car? But anyway. Um, so I give him the keys and I say, son, this is going to be a good car for you. And he says, uh, no thanks. Dad's not good enough. I don't want to be seen in a $900 car. So... I say, ingrate. But what it really means is, he doesn't trust me. He doesn't trust that what I'm giving him is good. So imagine that I, I give him the keys to the car, and I tell him this is going to be a good car for you. Trust me. And he um, takes the keys, but he never drives it. It just sits in the driveway, and he always wants to borrow my car. Um, to which I would say, still an ingrate, but the reality is he doesn't trust me. He doesn't trust that what I'm giving to him will be good for him. And uh, are you trusting that God is going to be good for you, to you, and that he has been good to you? Um, is that evidenced by your contented thankfulness? By your full and prompt obedience? 
by your faithful and hopeful waiting on God, even if it takes a really long time? Does that describe, does that describe you? Because it really described Caleb in our, in our section. If you turn back to chapter 14, the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God in Kadesh Barnea, concerning you and me. You and me, Joshua, Caleb says. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, to spy out the promised land that they were now in. And I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. Yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely, Caleb, the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. So don't miss what's going on here. Um, Caleb is remembering something that happened 45 years before. It's recorded in Numbers 13 and 14. He spied out the land, brought back a good report. God promised him that he could have that land. Okay? He is remembering a promise that's 45 years old. Um, it's recorded in Numbers 13 and 14. Okay? This, is a, this is a Mother's Day must-read Need to read this today. Numbers, go home and read Numbers 13 and 14 around the dinner table or on the porch or wherever you are going to hang out today and read Numbers 13 and 14. It's an awesome story. Um, they sent those spies, 12 spies, into the line, land. Ten of them brought a majority report back. It goes like this from Numbers. It's an excerpt from Numbers 13. The spies brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land, the promised land that we're talking about, that they had spied out, saying... The land um, through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there, are, and there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry. The people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. So that's the majority report by 10 of the spies in Numbers 13 14. But there were two other spies, Joshua and Caleb, who brought a different report, the minority report. And here's their report. Caleb would say, and Joshua, the land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. A land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Okay. And so now... 45 years later, Caleb is still that same kind of positive, believing faith in God and what he's going to do in the land. Back in Joshua, 
uh, chapter 14, this is what Caleb says. Now, Joshua, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said, these 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now, behold, I am this day 85 years old. I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength is now as my strength was then, for war and for going and coming. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there, the giants, with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall drive them out, just as the Lord said. Okay, 85 years old, spoiling for a fight, right? Uh, in the name of the Lord, trusting in the Lord. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I will drive them out just as the Lord said. Trusting God to be with him, trusting God to keep his word, just as he promised 45 years before. Caleb has been waiting 45 years for this moment. Waiting, trusting, hoping, and obeying for 45 years. You know, a more modern example of this kind of of persevering faith is a fellow named George Mueller um, from a couple hundred years ago. He writes in his journal, in November 1844, I begin to pray for the conversion of five individuals. I prayed every day without a single intermission, whether sick or in health, on the land, on the sea, and whatever the pressure of my engagements might be. Eighteen months elapsed. Eighteen months elapsed before the first of the five was converted. I thanked God and prayed on for the others. Five years elapsed, and then the second was converted. I thanked God for the second and prayed on for the other three. Day by day, I continued to pray for them, and six years passed before the third was converted. I thanked God for the three and went on praying for the other two. These two remained unconverted. Thirty-six years later, he wrote that the other two, sons of one of Mueller's friends, were still not converted. This is what he wrote. But I hope in God, I pray on and look for the answer. They are not converted yet, but they will be. And in 1897, 52 years after we began to pray daily without interruption for these two men, they were finally converted, but after his death. Um, One writer says that the story of Israel from the patriarchs, from Abraham to Joshua, is about finally reaching and owning the promised land after nearly seven centuries of waiting and imagining. Seven centuries. They've been trusting and hoping in God. Striving to obey God. And this section of Joshua is God keeping his word. Um, Is God giving them their promised inheritance. And their inheritance it's been said, is a foreshadow of our inheritance. As the land of Canaan was the inheritance of Israel that they waited and longed for, so a new heaven and a new earth is our inheritance that we wait and long for. Pastor John Piper says that the conquest of Canaan becomes a foreshadow of something greater yet to come. He says, of this we may be sure, if the old Joshua was victorious over the enemies of God, how much more the new Joshua? Because Joshua and Jesus are the same name, you know. 
Everything about the conquest of Canaan was written for our sake, he says, in order that we might have hope. In all those things that we see reflected dimly, the conquest of Jesus over Satan and death and hell and sin is reflected. With the blow that was struck at Calvary, we know the victory is ours. Therefore, let us strive to enter that rest, that none of us fall by the same sort of disobedience. For if we hold our first confidence firm to the end, the deep river of death will open before us, and Jesus will carry us over on dry ground to the land where all is peace. So we are right to wait and hope in the fulfillment of God's great promises. Promises of a land where the dwelling place of God will be with man, where he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things will have passed away. And so we wait. And while we wait, it is right for us to be content and to trust and to obey. Um, how, how ought that look for you these days? What, what ought you be content with, thankful for, faithful in, hopeful for, even though you've been doing it for a long time and God might ask you to do it for a bit more? What would that look like for you? Would you bow with me in prayer? Let's think about that together. So Father, we bow before you and we are for a myriad of reasons, a room full of people um, and we suffer great, great pains, great sorrows, great hardships. I only know a few of the stories, Lord. You know all of them. And um, we are tempted to quit. We are tempted to say you have not been faithful to us. And Lord, I pray that you would grant us faith to persevere in believing that you are good and that you will be good and that every promise will be wholly ours in the day of the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, our great inheritance. So help us, Lord. I pray especially for those who suffer, who are in hard places and are about ready to give up. Lord, grant them faith by the example of your people here and by your own example of being faithful in your time, always faithful in your time. Um, so Lord, grant us contentment with what you've allotted us that we might be thankful to you with glad hearts even this day. We ask all these things, Jesus, in your great name.